This is the APS China Quarterly, July 2020. A Brief History of China's Economic Transformation, a Personal Perspective, by Tan Kong Yam. The Collapse of National Self-Confidence It was not that long ago when China was a dirt-poor country. The official data confirmed this poverty. In 1978, when China opened up, World Bank data showed that its GDP per capita was only USD 156, less than a third of Sub-Sahara Africa's USD 490. The bottom 84% of the Chinese population lived below the poverty line of $1.25 per day. In April 1974, when Paramount leader Deng Xiaoping led the delegation to reclaim China's seat at the United Nations, there was a desperate scramble for U.S. dollars for the official delegation. At the time, the Chinese government only managed to scrounge USD 38,000 of greenbacks after scouring all the banks in China. Deng's delegation took all the available dollars but had only enough foreign exchange to pay for the expensive New York hotel and food. They were embarrassed to find that there were not enough U.S. dollars to tip the porters. Deng had to dig into his personal allowance for the tips. At the end of the trip, Deng was saddened to discover that he only had enough U.S. dollars left to purchase a bar of chocolate for his favorite granddaughter. The success of the Asian economies, especially that of Japan and the four Asian tigers, had an enormous impact and demonstration effect on the Chinese. When Deng opened up China and tried to look for a new model of economic development after the disastrous failure of the central planning model, they were thrashing around and found the Eastern European transitional model not fully applicable. Deng's visit to Japan and Singapore in 1978 convinced him that the relevant model was to be found in the neighborhood. When I was an assistant to the late Singapore Deputy Prime Minister Dr. Gokeng Sui in his advisory work on China's development strategy in 1985, Deng received us warmly at the Great Hall of the People and spoke passionately about his determination to open up China. According to him, China had paid a very heavy price for being closed to the outside world since the Ming Dynasty. He spoke at length on the shocks he experienced when he rode on the bullet train in October 1978 when he visited Japan. He was further shocked in November 1978 when he discovered that the oil refining capacity of Little Singapore was three times the size of the whole of China. He was flabbergasted that the ordinary worker's three-bedroom government-built apartment in Singapore was more spacious than that of senior government officials in Beijing. The Middle Kingdom had become the Midget Kingdom. His prestige and aura amongst China's power elite were clear from the way senior colleagues like Vice Premier Guo Mu and Foreign Minister Wu Shaixian sat at the edge of their chairs and faithfully took notes, like small school children jotting down instructions from their esteemed teacher. This aura was to prove critical, as during the course of the early period of China's economic reforms, the internal squabbles and dissension were serious and often acrimonious. Conservatives like Chen Yun, Yao Yilin, and Wang Jian considered the opening and development of special economic zones and the promotion of direct foreign investments as seriously undermining the Marxist doctrine. To them, it was against all that the entire generation of revolutionaries have fought and died for. 
Internal party documents revealed serious discord and revolutionary old guards wept while visiting the new capitalist paradise of Shenzhen, seeing their lifelong struggle collapse in front of their very eyes. Again and again, Deng's revolutionary prestige and aura carried the day and helped to settle the squabbles, keeping the ship of economic reform on an even keel and preventing it from capsizing. The dead hand of central planning had very serious consequences. When our advisory team visited Shanghai in 1985, the red capitalist Rong Yiren, who was later to become vice president, hosted a dinner for us. I was saddened to find the glorious Shanghai I had read so much about reduced to shabby poverty. The departmental store considered among the nation's best was less well-stocked than the small shops in humble regional shopping centers in Singapore. After dinner, dessert consisted of rotten bananas. The old men around the table, all former great capitalists who used to be the big tycoons in pre-liberation Shanghai when Li Kaxing and Yue Kongpao were still nobodies, all scrambled for those rotten bananas. I was shocked. The central planning system had eviscerated the spirit and dynamism of the people. They were now so poor that even these great men were reduced to such a state of affairs. As I looked painfully at their drawn faces and white bushy eyebrows that betrayed great bygone ambitions, I was mentally calculating the losses to the economy. Had these great industrialists been given free reign and the right incentive system, they would surely have generated significant growth, creating wealth for both themselves and the country. How many Bill Gates and Steve Jobs were crushed and destroyed in the turmoil of revolutionary class struggle? However, I was not to be disappointed for long. Late that same night in Shanghai, while reflecting on Deng's remarks at the Great Hall of the People, I walked out to the deserted street. By a side road, I saw a young boy studying under the streetlight. His house was too cramped and lacked proper lighting. He was studying English. I helped him with several sentences and wished him well. On the way back to the hotel, I struck up conversations with several entrepreneurial hawkers selling cold and hard buns to migrant workers from Henan working at a nearby construction site late into the night. As Dang's Sichuan-accented voice echoed through me, conveying his passionate determination to open up China, I saw glimpses of the emergence of the young shoots of a new dynamic China clawing its way back from the precipice. All the necessary ingredients for dynamic economic growth were there. The strong political will to rebuild the nation from the very top, the hunger for education that enriches human capital, the entrepreneurial spirit, and the construction of new infrastructure to support growth. They just needed to get the institutions and incentive system right, and the energy will explode from the uncorked bottle. Deng's opening of the special economic zones and coastal provinces, plus the initial industrialization through the promotion of the inflow of foreign direct investments, led to the export-oriented strategy and the development of manufacturing capability in labor-intensive products. This sparked China's initial engine of growth, and its success led to further domestic reforms that eventually laid the foundation for sustained expansion. The demonstration effect of the success of the Asian tigers helped to point the way. 
It is noteworthy that Zhao Ziyang's second son, Zhao Erjun, once remarked that the successful Asian economic model, epitomized by Singapore, gave his father the confidence to push through difficult reforms in China's early stages of development when disagreement and dissension were strong. In the initial period, the collapse of national self-confidence was palpable. In late January 1979, Deng made a historic official state visit to the U.S., the first ever by a paramount leader of China. Official TV beamed back images of the U.S. exploited working classes, spacious homes, and cars. Some of the officials I met later told me quite a few of their colleagues' jaws dropped when they discovered that the exploited working class had a better lifestyle than the elites in China, let alone the vanguard proletariat in China. Gradually, information also trickled in that the similarly exploited Taiwanese working class also enjoyed a much better standard of living whilst patiently waiting for their communist liberators. They were far from living in conditions of deep water and searing fire, as the official Chinese propaganda had indicated. It is testimony to both the will and skill of Deng and his comrades that they managed to inspire sufficient confidence that the whole Chinese system did not collapse into an avalanche of despair and hopelessness. This sense of historical and cultural confidence did not waver even in the depths of national economic weakness. Kissinger noted that when Nixon went to see Mao in 1972, he had to ride in the creaky red flag limousine. When I accompanied Dr. Gokang Sui to see Deng in 1985, he was the state guest and was allocated the red flag while, as his assistant, I was given Mercedes. It did not matter that the air conditioner in my Mercedes worked better than that in his red flag. In the final analysis... It was the sense that the country had a long history of glorious achievement and the confidence that it will eventually regain its past grandeur that gave the whole nation and its people the self-assurance and spirit to live through the darkest moment of despair and collapse of self-confidence, eventually emerging vindicated. This sense of historical humiliation was very strong and hence the tremendous urge and enormous propulsive force for success. China has always had this sense of strong historical continuity. When I was attending an official meeting with Premier Zhao Ziyang in Zhongnenhai, the official residence of the top party leaders in Beijing today, I noticed the ceiling motif there is similar to that of the Forbidden City that was built during the Ming Dynasty. Zhongnenhai's heavy red curtain reminded me of the palace intrigues of the bygone imperial dynasties. In my extensive travel throughout all the 31 provinces and municipalities as well as over 100 villages and towns in China, from peasants in Guizhou to intellectuals in Guangdong, from retrenched workers in Jilin to tycoons in Zhejiang, from coal workers in Shanxi to cadres in Tibet, from construction workers in Ningxia to housewives in Yunnan, from steelworkers in Inner Mongolia to retired teachers in Sichuan, I always sensed this deeply felt historical burden and the urge to strive to restore national pride. This powerful invisible web of shared destiny and fervent nationalism has provided the gargantuan driving force to propel the nation forward, albeit sometimes too rapidly and recklessly. The Recovery of the Economy and Cultural Confidence
1980, China's GDP was too small to be compared to the U.S. or even California. It was only 1.2 times of that of New York State, and if Texas was combined with Illinois, their GDP would be 1.2 times that of China. China was indeed a small country. After 40 years of high growth, China has risen from 6.7% of U.S. GDP in 1980 to 66% by 2019. If measured in IMF purchasing power parity terms, China is already 27% larger than the U.S. Compared to Japan, the rise is even more spectacular, rising from 17.3% in 1980 to 274% by 2019. Measured in purchasing power parity terms, China is already almost five times the size of the Japanese economy. By 2019, Guangdong province alone had a GDP of USD 1.56 trillion, slightly smaller than Russia's USD 1.66 trillion, and getting closer to Canada's USD 1.71 trillion. Existing trends indicate that Guangdong province alone will qualify as a G7 country by 2021, based on its GDP. The latent explosive energy and dynamism that I witnessed that night in Shanghai in 1985 have now blossomed into the dazzling lights of Shanghai's Bund in 2020. I believe nobody in China would have foreseen such a spectacular climb from poverty. When I met Deng's youngest daughter, Deng Rong, in 1991, she told me that her father had a problem recognizing the buildings in Beijing when he went out with the family. When I was at the World Bank in Beijing from 2002 to 2005, working with the state council on the 11th five-year plan, I made it a point to ask party secretaries and ministers, former as well as those still in office, whether they would have believed it had somebody in 1980 told them that China would look like what it was then. Not one said that they had anticipated such drastic transformations and progress. One senior government official told me in Beijing that in a major internal meeting in the 1970s, Deng remarked that one day China could have foreign reserves amounting to USD 10 billion. The meeting suddenly fell into total dead silence, for nobody then believed it would ever happen, but none dared to openly and directly contradict Deng. Today, with China's foreign reserves amounting to USD 3.1 trillion, Deng's seemingly brazen 1970s optimism and ambition had underestimated the amount by a factor of 310 times. This spectacular expansion of the Chinese economy laid the foundation for the steady recovery of cultural self-confidence and rising nationalism. The Maoist Cultural Revolution was a major power struggle. It was also an attempt by a nation losing self-confidence to purge itself of its humiliating traditional and backward culture. When I visited Confucius's birthplace in Kiefu in 1996, the stone tablet detailing his life history was visibly put together again after being smashed during the Cultural Revolution. The scar, both physical and psychological, was very visible. Over time, I observed a steady gradual progress of rising cultural self-confidence. In the 1980s, the four bushy-bearded foreigners, Karl Marx, Friedrich Engels, Vladimir Lenin, and Joseph Stalin dominated Tiananmen Square during National Day celebrations. However, by the 1990s, they were gradually replaced by Chairman Mao and Dr. Sun Yat-sen. 
in 2011, somebody even put a 31-foot bronze statue of Confucius near Tiananmen Square. It was later mysteriously removed under the cover of darkness. Labeled as superstitious and backward, traditional Chinese festivals were banished from the 1950s to the 1980s. By the 1990s and 2000s, traditional Chinese festivals like the Mid-Autumn Festival, the Dragon Boat Festival, and Qingming were proudly celebrated as public holidays once again. Traveling through the countryside from 1985 to 2010, I witnessed this steady transformation. Marxist slogans on class struggle in villages gradually evolved into market-oriented slogans on greater production, better harvests, birth control for prosperity, and temples for villagers to pray for fortune and good health. Peasant family homes reverted to displaying traditional couplets on good fortune, prosperity, and wealth on their doors. Ancestral altars and kitchen god figurines made a comeback. In 2002, when I was visiting a small poor village in Henan, I dropped by the sole provision store which sold everything from rice, salt, and fertilizer to general goods. I noticed the picture of a rosy-cheeked Chairman Mao, his unsightly mole airbrushed away. His picture was placed next to the God of Fortune. As I spoke to the storekeeper, it was clear that in the village, Chairman Mao has become a serious competitor to the God of Fortune. Villagers put his picture at the altar and prayed for wealth and prosperity. The storekeeper told me that it sold better because Chairman Mao was also a courageous military man. His picture could also act as a talisman to chase away whatever evil spirits that the god of fortune was unable to vanquish. The great helmsman probably never expected himself to be remembered in such an unrevolutionary manner. China had finally become confident to be Chinese again. Xi and the Rising Nationalist Fervor the post-Cold War collapse of communism witnessed the rise of nationalism in many parts of the former communist world. In multi-ethnic countries like the former Soviet Union and Yugoslavia which fragmented, nationalism emerged from the bottom up as ethnic and separatist movements. As an ethnically relatively homogenous country, Chinese nationalism since the 1980s was largely shaped from the top by the powerful state. Like the former Soviet Union, the rapid decay of communist ideology resulted in a serious internal legitimacy crisis. Thankfully, dynamic and spectacular economic growth provided the magnificent substitute of performance legitimacy. In addition, the rising cultural self-confidence and pride provided by invoking glorious historical achievements and distinctive Chinese cultural characteristics conveniently filled the vacuum left by the collapse of Marxist-Leninism and Mao Zedong thought, known in the West as Maoism. One of the most important accomplishments in consolidating the rise of Chinese nationalism was the government's successful launch of an extensive propaganda campaign of patriotic education after the Tiananmen Troubles of 1989. Like Mao, President Xi Jinping and his father's origins are deep in the center of China's original cultural core in the Yellow River Plain. The nativist instinct is strong and the Yellow Earth culture is entrenched, looking inward rather than venturing abroad across the Seven Seas. On the other hand, Zhao and Lai originated in the outward-looking coastal province of Jiangsu, while Deng came from the deep interior of Sichuan, he went to study in France. 
The five years he spent in a market economy there must have sown the seeds of his open-door policy when he later emerged as the paramount leader who rejected Maoism and ushered China into the global market economy. Since Xi assumed power in 2012, he has spearheaded the confidence doctrine as his signature political philosophy. It calls for party members, government officials, and the Chinese people to be confident in our chosen path, confident in our guiding theories, confident in our political system, and confident in our culture. Officially, the doctrine is termed Four Matters of Confidence. In particular, the slogan of Great Revival of the Chinese Nation has become a strong and successful clarion call. The resulting cultural pride and nationalism have acted as a magic glue to neutralize the centrifugal forces resulting from rising inequality, social polarization, and regional tension. The distinguished Chinese historian, Professor Wang Gongwu, has noted that China is likely to insist on its own unique path of development. Wang argued, At least two generations of Chinese have learnt to appreciate that the modern West has valuable ideas and institutions to offer, but the turmoil of much of the 20th century has also made them feel that the Western European versions of democracy might not be that important for China's national development. The majority of Chinese seem to approve of policies that place order and stability above freedom and political participation. They believe that this is what the country needs at this stage and resent being regularly criticized as politically unliberated and backward. Implications for Consumer Behavior and Investment The escalating tension between the U.S. and China has intensified the nationalist feelings of the Chinese population. At the onset of the trade war in July 2018, there were liberal reformists who were supportive of the U.S. in pressuring China to reform and liberalize. However, the nationalists have argued that the real intention of the U.S. was to undermine and hold back China's development. As the trade war escalated into a tech war and Huawei was attacked, the nationalists felt vindicated. Over the past few years, this intensifying nationalist feeling has started to show up more pronouncedly in its impact on consumer behavior. A 2019 survey by McKinsey noted that with rising quality and performance of local brands, consumer behavior has changed dramatically. In the survey, consumers indicate a clear preference for Chinese brands over foreign ones in 13 out of 19 categories. These include basic items like tissue paper, home cleaning products, milk, and fresh food, as well as products more connected to identity and lifestyle, such as phones, computer tablets, beer, and household appliances like refrigerators. Between 33 and 57% of Chinese consumers say they prefer local brands in these categories. Increasingly, many consumers are also likely to pick local brands for more expensive premium products like higher-end digital devices, skincare, cosmetics, and red wine. In smartphones, nationalist sentiment has already pushed down the market share of Apple and Samsung. Huawei's market share has risen from 34% in 2019 Q1 to 41% in 2020 Q1. As the trade war expands into a tech war that raises volatility in capital markets, it is likely that nationalist sentiment would intensify. An investment strategy that identifies domestic brands and products that could benefit from this escalating trend is likely to yield dividends.
Professor Tan Kong Yam is a founding member and deputy chairman China of APS Asset Management. He is also professor of economics at the Nanyang Technological University. He serves as a board member at the Changi Airport Group from 2015 to present. From 1985 to 1988, he was the chief assistant to Dr. Go King Sui the late Deputy Prime Minister of Singapore who was invited by Mr. Deng Xiaoping to advise China on economic development strategy. From June 2002 to June 2005, he was a senior economist at the World Bank office in Beijing. In 2004, he was a member of the World Bank expert group on the 11th five-year plan ranging from 2006 to 2010 for the State Council in China. He served as the chief economist of the Singapore government from 1999 to 2002.